This is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's conversation first aired in 2013. It's about having difficult conversations across partisan political lines, a subject that has never been more timely than it is right now. My guest, Sheila Heen, is a founder of Triad Consulting Group and a lecturer at Harvard Law School. She works with business leaders around the world as a consultant, advising them on how to manage work relationships, especially difficult negotiations where emotions run high. She co-authored the New York Times bestseller, Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most. Since our conversation three years ago, I've remembered it as one of the most fun interviews I've done on the show. As I listened again, I remembered what it was that I liked so much about it. It's that she's so honest about the difficulty she has in her marriage to a man with a different political persuasion than her own. And the idea of hers that stuck with me the most, probably because it's so paradoxical, is that when we let go of trying to persuade and instead focus on really trying to understand the other person, that's when we are actually the most persuasive. I think because we all want so much to feel understood that when we are, it softens us and makes us more receptive and open. It's a wonderful thing to remember if you're having an argument. Stop trying so hard to get the other person to understand you and focus on understanding them. Here's my 2013 conversation with Sheila Heen. Welcome to Safe Space, Sheila. Thank you very much. So as you know, this show is about personal stories, often stories that are hard to tell. And you know so much about difficult conversations. I'd love for us to start with hearing a story of your own about a conversation that was hard for you to have and and what you learned from it. Um, One of the things that is so challenging but also rewarding about the work that I get to do is that, of course, I have to have the challenge of living it. Um, day in and day out, both with my clients and my colleagues, but also at home. And my husband, I met teaching negotiation. So he also teaches people how to have difficult conversations. And you would think that that would help us. (laughs) I already see where this story is going. (laughs) Sometimes it just gives you more ammunition, you know, where he says, oh, nice listening, Miss Difficult Conversation. You know, probably the toughest periods that we've had are election seasons because we straddle the political divide. And we have two differences, really. One is our views on a number of issues, obviously. Um, But the other is that um, our interest in the sport of politics is also really diametrically opposed. I kind of can't stand the way it's point scoring and posturing. And he finds that both entertaining and interesting. So, you know, this last election season went as the last few have, which is that we had our array of signs out front. And, you know, we can watch the same speech or the same debate. And we each notice very different things. And there's this funny dual quality, which is that it's hard to have a conversation at home when I'm having emotional reactions to what he's saying. But then I turn around and when I talk to people outside my home, 
what's hard is that a lot of us just talk to other people who agree with us and demonize the other side. So then I find myself defending him to other people to say, look, they're not crazy. Like they, they're saying a lot of things that make a lot of sense. And so I, it's this funny situation where I keep having to shift my stance and, and none of those conversations are easy. Does it feel like your work and your training helps you? It definitely helps me when I can step back, because I think one of the things that's so easy to do, both personally in our lives, but certainly in the political dialogue, is to attribute malicious intentions, stupidity, idiocy, not caring, you know, they don't get it, to the other side. And that's hard to do when actually... You know, if I'm being rational, I know he gets it, and I know he cares, and I know he's just as smart as me, or almost. (laughs) Um, So I can't keep up the charade. It's much more comfortable to think that the other people are just crazy or checked out or foolish or not American or not committed or not patriotic. Pick Pick your descriptor. As I'm hearing you, what I'm thinking, I'm thinking of someone that I know and care about dearly, who also is on the other side of the political divide. And I think that part of what makes the conversation so painful and difficult is that part of what makes each of us feel good about who we are, are the political stances that we take. I mean, it's sort of deeply wedded to this sense of righteousness, uh, and and a feeling yeah. of my you know a sort of my sense of identity as good is connected to being on the right side of this issue. I think we both feel that way, Absolutely. and so it's it gets rocked by there being this other person who also is good, who really disagrees, and it's it feels shaking at a deep internal level about what makes me good, what makes me lovable. It touches that even though I'm not necessarily even thinking about that in the conversation about you know, money for education or the environment or something like that. Right. Well, it very quickly becomes personal for, I think, all of the reasons that you describe. And what's interesting is that our kids are watching this. And so we're very aware of the idea that we have to show them that actually mom and dad both care a lot about health care. We just have different ideas for how to go about approaching some of the problems. If I can find that frame, we can have a really good conversation. And we can have a conversation where I can stay mostly in curiosity. I keep having to like nudge myself back there yes. <laughs> from reactivity to curiosity. But I can mostly stay there. If the conversation opens with, can you believe what so-and-so said today, which was the stupidest thing ever, which I'm delighting in and filled with glee. We're just in such different emotional places. It's, it's really hard to find a place to connect. One of the things that was interesting to me is I thought, so because of what we do, we've been asked to talk together publicly about standing on the opposite sides of this divide. And in 2008, we turned down all of those invitations, but I accepted one radio interview for the day after the election, thinking, well, by then the storm will have passed, things will have settled down. The problem was that I found the day after the election, we were even further apart emotionally, because I was thrilled, and he was devastated. So it was actually, we were closer together in the moment of not knowing. 
And I think this last election, we really took advantage of that and went out to dinner as a family on election night and talked about what's the most important thing is actually that people can disagree in this country and we all have a way to settle it and trying to teach our kids that actually disagreement is what keeps the country healthy if we can keep having the conversation. It's wonderful to hear that. And I also hear that it's painful that the next day you felt quite far apart and it keeps us healthy, but it's a painful medicine to take. It is painful. And, you know, one of the things that, so we've been married almost 20 years and so many people will tell you that one of the keys to a happy marriage is to never go to bed mad. And I'm sure that's true for some people, but I actually find if I'm mad late at night, like I really need to go to bed mad because this is not going to be the moment where we're going to be able to talk it through and get a better understanding. We're only going to be more upset and get less sleep. And somehow by the morning, I wake up and I have a more balanced perspective on life. And it's not that I've forgotten the issue, but it's, it's in perspective. That's so wonderful. So talking to Sheila Heen, expert on difficult conversations, <laughs> we now have a different perspective, which is go to sleep mad. You're not going to solve it when you're tired. <laughs> that feels very mad. realistic, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes if you try to talk about it, you're just going to be more mad. So, so go with the initial mad level and sleep on it. You know, I want to speak to a part of what I feel very touched by in hearing you is that you obviously have great love and respect for your husband, and, and I'm assuming he does for you, and that while there's such a pull to demonize the other, I'm hearing that somehow you find a way to really respect him and look for the value in his perspective, even though you deeply disagree with him. And I... I find myself imagining that not only does disagreement keep the country healthy, but that perhaps it it could keep, you know, you healthy. It could keep you humble about your own righteousness. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that has been interesting to watch in myself, and, you know, don't tell him. <laughs> this will be but our I secret, think, Sheila. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one else will know this, right? Um is that my view has shifted on some things. Uh-huh. And my view has shifted partly as a result of life experience and partly as a result of really coming to appreciate some things that I think I didn't give enough weight to when I was younger. And I think he's moved in my direction too, although he'll never admit that to you. And so I think that willingness to be open and not that I've flipped sides but I have a lot more empathy. I think that we're closer together on the abortion issue now than we were 20 years ago, for sure. As I hear you say that, you know, you've approached the middle on some of the issues, I'm wondering if that's because he tried so hard to persuade you or if it was actually that you listened to him and realized that he was coming from a really solid, trustworthy place. I think, I mean, one of the paradoxes of being persuasive is that we're almost persuasive when we let go of trying to persuade and we actually become more open to persuasion ourselves. And so I think he did let go of the idea that he was ever going to persuade me. And 
when he was more interested in what I was worried about, not what's my reasoning, but what is it that you you fear will happen if what you think should happen doesn't? What is it that you are worried about? And that question really cuts to the heart of what's motivating our story about the world. And the problem, of course, the blessing and the problem for us as human beings is that we don't store data, we store stories. And so my views, my personal views, my political views, et cetera, are all stories. And the stories protect against something, right? Yes. It, it needs, the world works this way because, or if it doesn't, then we might. Um, and we started to talk about those stories. And I think for the first time when I'm not defending myself against his efforts to push me or persuade me, you know, I'm able to, like, look at my own views and my own concerns and maybe include some I hadn't thought of before, and things can resort or reshuffle in a way that if I'm just defending myself, you know, the walls are up and this is not the time to be doubting ourselves because we have to defend it's interesting in therapy there's this question that I often ask which is you know if someone's engaged in some kind of behavior that seems self-destructive like say drinking to excess mm-hmm. a question that I would often ask is what is what is the part of you that drinks afraid would happen if it didn't drink if it didn't get you to drink and that question is so similar to what it sounds like your husband asked you and that's what leaves that's what uncovers this whole story of vulnerability and the ways in which the drinking is actually a protective response or you know it's an attempt to protect yeah and so it's fascinating to hear that that same question is useful in kind of disarming an intense conflict well the one thing that i would add to that is that the other phrase that I felt useful both for myself and for others when I work with them is the idea of part of yourself. So part of yourself is worried about what? And then they can fill that in or I can fill that in, but it leaves me room to say, okay, but part of myself thinks I'm overreacting so that it allows for complexity in a way that is real because as human beings, we hold two feelings. You know, I can want to kill him yeah, and never speak to him again. And I can love him and can't imagine life without him. And so I need room for both of those feelings or both of those views or worries in the conversation. Otherwise, I'm not fully present. Yes, and of course, you might actually feel five different ways about him. <laughs> oh, yes. Can we get into the nitty-gritty? Yeah, right. Why exactly. settle on two, Sheila? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes, that's so powerful. Internal family systems, which I'm, I'm guessing you've been exposed to, is all about that approach, about having parts. Is that familiar? Yeah. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's also been interesting to listen to our kids who come home from school and they'll say, well, so-and-so was saying that the other side, whichever side, is stupid. And that's stupid because they don't get that they have a decent point. And so it's been interesting to watch it go with our kids. Now, when I took my Well, I went to the inauguration in 2009, and um, my husband was like, you're trying to indoctrinate them. (laughs) What was funny is, like, I'm not as invested in politics as you are. Like, if anyone's trying to indoctrinate around here, it it certainly isn't me. You know, he said, well, just leave it up to them. And and so my middle son came with me, and we road-tripped. 
down. And what's really interesting is that I think John has come to appreciate that experience for him as being American as opposed to one-sided and that it can go both ways, right? There are going to be next inaugurations that will go the other way. And in fact, part of what's so moving about an inauguration is the peaceful transfer of power. Yeah, so powerful. That we and, are you know, so we privileged. Work in a lot of countries where that does not happen. So I have sort of a visceral appreciation for how unusual it is in world history. So part of what I, it sounds like you've learned as a family is that a way to hold the differences is by valuing taking a step above it and looking at the value of those differences and how the relationship of differences serves the country, serves your marriage, serves the, your children, is, is the deep value you place on honoring difference. And I'm, I'm actually looking at a quote that I underlined in your book on page 29. It says, telling someone to change makes it less rather than more likely that they will. This is because people almost never change without first feeling understood. So, so in other words, yeah. if we want to be persuasive of other people, the thing we have to do is understand them. Yeah, it's almost like we're standing in a standoff. And I'm not willing to step across the line to turn around and see the, see the world from your point of view. And if I'm not doing that, how in the world can I insist that you come over here? Because you want to know that I'm willing to stand alongside you to consider your point of view and really see it in a robust way first. And I think that's one of the interesting things about about prioritizing what is it that I'm trying to do as a parent, because parenting is the place where it's hardest to use all these skills for me. If I could have one wish for one thing I could give to my children, I think it would be to give them good judgment and the ability to make good decisions in how they handle their relationships. Because I think the quality of the relationships that we have in our lives, everything else unfolds from that. And if I want them to have robust relationships, they have to see how you work through things when you don't see it eye to eye. You know, the research out there about kids and what they learn from their parents about conflict, divide them into three groups. One is kids who have never saw their parents fight. You know, the parents, if they had a disagreement, it happened behind closed doors. It was a rarity. They can hardly even remember. The second is kids who saw their parents fight, but then the parents went off to the other room and, for whatever reason, came back out and they were friends again. And the kids never figured out how that happened. And the third group is the kids who did see their parents disagree, but also saw how they worked their way to a place of reconciliation. And of course, that third group is the group that does the best. And I think the temptation is to think, oh, we shouldn't disagree in front of the kids. Or if we do, after it erupts, we better take it in the other room. And I've really tried to draw a line between things they shouldn't over here, but also things that they really need to see us work through, because that's what's going to teach them how to work through it, whether that's in their working relationships or their personal relationships. I almost find myself wondering if you're doing it in front of your kids, too, if it if it pulls for the best in you, you know, if it makes you really want to do a good job of it, and if that in some ways helps. 
I wish that were true even more often. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have to get out of my head of, you know, oh, you're driving me crazy to say, okay, somebody's watching me being driven crazy and watching how I'm handling it. If I can get to that place, actually, it gets a lot easier. But, of course, that's a hard place to get to because when we're frustrated or hurt or lonely or feel dismissed, that's exactly the place where we're so consumed with coping with our own hurt or anger that it's hard to step outside ourselves to have that self-awareness. And so let's talk about that. So there you are. You're feeling some combination of those things. Your children are watching. You happen to know this research, so you have this additional part of you saying, like, come on, Sheila, do a good job. I know, exactly. And maybe you will doing no harm in this moment. I'm doing no harm. That's right. <laughs> but, of course, you may also be having some other part of you judging you and feeling a little bit of shame that you're not doing a better job than you are, which, of course, that, oh, of course. that yeah. only makes it worse. So there you are. You're feeling hurt and dismissed and angry. What is the way that you do go inside and get clear about that? I mean, what what's the way that you have learned to step back from it and get a little clearer? I think I used to think that I had to be able to figure it out in the moment and that I should be able to get there in front of everyone. And I think as I've gotten older and maybe I've just gotten more reactive, I've given myself a little bit of a break to say, you know what, right now, I actually can't get there from here. And so part of it is maybe admitting and showing them, you know what, right now, I can't actually talk about this. And I need to walk away, but I'm not walking away because I don't want to have this conversation when we're ready. I'm not walking away because I'm abandoning or rejecting or, you know, slamming the door. I'm walking away because I have to go get a hold of myself and what I think and feel, and then we need to come back and talk about it. And sometimes it's as quick as walking into the other room, taking a few deep breaths, I can walk back in. Other times it's like, okay, let's see, let's schedule this. This is never good for you. (laughs) (laughs) The danger, though, is that we walk away and we never go back and have the conversation. Right, because you're working parents. When do you have time to talk alone, you know, to talk privately with your spouse? Well, exactly. So rarely. But I want to just stay with it because I love that. So you're really saying it's recognizing this might not be possible. I need to take mm-hmm. care of myself. I'm going to do that. But then if you do walk into the next room and you take a couple of deep breaths, is there any other question that you've learned to ask yourself about, all right, what's going on inside me? What am I feeling? What is this? What is the story I'm telling myself? Or you know, is there a, is there a practice that you have like that to try to help yourself get clear? Yeah, there. Actually, I hadn't even thought about this this clearly before. There are two questions that help, and maybe this is because I'm a particularly stubborn person. <laughs> the two questions are: Okay, what do I still love about this person? <laughs> If that anything, a few minutes to actually come up with something. <laughs> That's right. Um, Even though he's not worthy of that love. <laughs> yeah, this this makes me crazy. If I step back, I can think of something eventually that I still like about him. And the other one, which is almost even harder, is what's right about what he's saying. Because what I'm focused on is what's wrong with what he's saying. You know, whether it's politics or personal or parenting or whatever it is that we're disagreeing about, if I ask myself what's right about what he's saying, it actually taps my brain to look for, 
a place where we can stand together. And sometimes what's right about what he's saying is just what's, what we're doing now isn't working. Okay, we can both agree on that. <laughs> this is not getting any better in terms of whatever parenting issue we're trying to solve, et cetera. But, if, but that actually gives me a place where I can walk back in. And I can start with, okay, I think you're right about X and Y. We don't agree on how to tackle it or how important it is or not important it is, but this is a place we can stand and then talk about what are we going to do and why do you see it this way. Um, and that actually creates, it's not that it creates a door, the door is there, it's just I've got my back to it, so I can't see it, a door to a better conversation. Part of what I love about those two questions is that I, I grew up with my dad always telling me that love was hard work, you know, and was a was an act of will. And I always thought that was such a Puritan, you know, unromantic definition of love. <laughs> like, New England, isn't it? Exactly. I was like, gee, thanks, Dad. But I'm thinking of him now as I hear you, because even getting your, when I, you know, if I'm so mad, I have to step out of the room and breathe to choose to come to those two questions. What do I still love about this person? And what might he be saying that's right? That feels like an, a real act of love, like an act of the will to choose to focus that way. Is it ever a struggle to do it? Is it ever like, no, I want to sit here and just stew in how wrong he is and how awful? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because that's much more satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> I tend to have this phrase in my head, which is, if you have to leave to walk around the block, there are two directions you can walk around the block. One direction is the direction where I collect all the other evidence of everything that's wrong with him and all the other times that he's, you know, been impossible or hurt me or et cetera. And the result is when I come back in the room, I'm even more like I'm loaded for bear. Yeah. Because, by the way, I've collected a bunch more ammunition. And then the other direction is this direction. And I have to make a conscious choice of which direction I'm going to walk around that block. It's such a great way to picture it, standing out there at your doorstep, sort of choosing which way to walk around the block. And maybe you would walk around the block one way and gather all the evidence and then get back home and then choose to walk back the other way. I mean, you don't have to get it right the first time, it seems to me. Luckily, in New England, we have really big, long blocks (laughs) (laughs) and country roads. Sometimes I need to walk for quite some time before I can come back. But... But I will always come back. And I think that commitment, feeling solid, that promise is part of what helps you endure in a relationship, whether it's a friendship or a sibling relationship or a marriage or a work relationship, which is, look, I'll stay through the hard parts and we'll see if we can figure it out. I think we can. And that same commitment, I think, allows it to be okay to go to sleep mad or to take yeah, a moment away because exactly. he, he trusts you are, you are going to come back. Yeah. He knows it. Sheila, thank you so much for being my guest on Safe Space. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. That was my 2013 conversation with conflict resolution specialist Sheila Heen, author of the book Difficult Conversations, How to Talk About What Matters Most, as well as a book that's come out since the interview called Thanks for the Feedback, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well. 
If you like the show and want to hear more about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. And leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. <laughs>